relax, you got nothing to lose. What do you think I'm about to show you? The female of the species is more deadly than a male. Show me a movie, you can say it again. Just wait till you see what I did at the end. The female of the species is more deadly than a male. The female of the species is more deadly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the More Deadly Podcast, where we review horror movies directed exclusively by women-identified directors, which prove that the female of the species is more deadly than the male. More Deadly is a trans-inclusive podcast where we celebrate the work of cis and trans women, as well as non-binary filmmakers who are comfortable being included in a space that centers the work of women. I'm your co-host, Rachel, and joining me is one of my favorite people on this planet, one of the toughest people who essentially moved an entire apartment by herself, so don't mess with her. (laughs) She'll kick your butt. It's the one and only Ariel. Hi. (laughs) Hey, girl. How are you doing? <laughs> Better now. Oh, good. <laughs> it was good. touch and go there for a minute, but I'm doing good. I mean, it, leave it to you to plan a move and then have an ice storm. Move yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty ridiculous. Like, I'm not even joking when I tell you that I had to, like, strap stuff to my back and use my grandfather's old umbrella with, like, one of the metal pointy ends to, like, help me get through the parking lot without falling on my ass a million times. <sighs> That's how oh slippery it was. Jeez, yeah. I'm amazed that you did not injure yourself. Congratulations, oh, I did. Ariel. I'm covered in bruises, but I'm okay. I didn't break oh, anything. No. So okay, because you're like the bone breaking as person I know. I know. I'm kind of amazed that and and delighted to hear that you're not broken yeah, in a million me places. Me too. It was it was pretty great. It's unusual, but I'm happy about it. <laughs> That's good. I have to say, I'm very happy that you are in an apartment that you want to be in, that it's bigger and all of those things. Mm -hmm. But I'm worried about what it means for the podcast. (laughs) Please tell me this shit is still weird in this new unit. Um, Honestly, not as weird. No! (laughs) So far. I knew this was going to (laughs) happen. My upstairs neighbors do have screaming matches. Okay. About anything good? Like, I'm hoping it's this over the stupidest stuff. Like... I don't like crunchy peanut butter. (laughs) Oh my God. I wish. No, it kind of sounds like maybe she had an affair and he doesn't (gasps) support her enough. And she's never home and someone doesn't take care of the dog enough. Regular relationship stuff, but they scream at the top of their lungs and it goes on for like an hour. And then you'll just hear two doors slam at like opposite ends of the apartment. And then it's like silence for a couple hours. So. They'll probably be moving out soon. So that's the good news. <laughs> and also, I appreciate the volume because it would save you from having to rig some sort of contraption to put a glass up against the ceiling. <laughs> right. To eavesdrop. Uh huh. Yeah. Because, you know, like sometimes, like the most entertainment you can have is listening to your neighbors argue. That's I, true. I used to love, I had this neighbor that would fight with his boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I live tweeted it in the Discord one you time. You did. It, it was, <laughs> it was incredible great. because it was, it, it was not just that they were fighting it was the most absurd fight and it had levels like there were moments of reconciliation followed by like i could hear the 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 boyfriend gaslighting the other one from like i couldn't hear him but i could i could sense it i could smell the gas and the gaslight by his reactions and yeah everybody's name was ridiculous like one of them was like argus and and he'd be like you know i don't know it was a whole thing over grinder it was amazing it was like one of the greatest (laughs) fights i've ever heard in my life but i miss i do miss that and my neighborhood is so quiet it's lovely but i do miss the grinder fights yeah so i'm gonna live vicariously for you (laughs) yeah yeah so i'm hoping i'm hoping you're gonna discover a whole bunch of of new weirdos to entertain us yeah i mean I don't, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm so, I'm a good friend in a lot of ways, but not this one. <laughs> I did, by the way, have to explain the caution tape to my family because when I was moving, they came to help me for a couple hours and I had not 
realized that it was still in the closet. And so somebody discovered it. And then I had to explain like why I had a roll of caution tape and a baggie full of cockroaches. <laughs> you should have just stared them down and just been like, you know, don't yuck my young. Don't kink shame me. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> or just be like, do you want to find out? <laughs> <laughs> Although I guess you're trying to keep the movers in the house. Although that might have actually made them a little more motivated to stick right? around. <laughs> a little threatening. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll just see how this plays out. Just know that I'm rooting for you. Okay. All right. <laughs> and by you, I mean me (laughs) if it makes you feel any better my backyard now is literally the area where i used to walk my dog where i saw the nudist that time so you never know what could happen ariel i have to say that does actually make me (laughs) (laughs) so thank you for that (laughs) awesome all right ariel Mm-hmm. I feel like it's been so long we've been since we've been together. I feel out of practice with this. So I know. this is the part where I think we talk about what we're doing this episode. Yeah, that's uh, probably no. a good idea. Yes. Ariel, this was your pick. What are we reviewing on this episode of More Deadly? We are reviewing The Velvet Vampire from 1971, directed by Stephanie Rothman. I am so excited because it's like as someone who is, I would say, a connoisseur of women-directed horror. Mm-hmm. Hers is a name that is always included on lists because she's one of the few sort of early women horror directors. But in all honesty, I've seen literally zero of her films, which is shameful. But I'm very excited that tonight we get to correct that. (laughs) Me too. Me too. This This was an interesting one. And it was really interesting researching her. So I'm excited to share. Oh, I love it. I'm so glad you're doing the research for this because I feel like this one is worthy of a really good like background and you excel at this so it's all feels <laughs> I did very a deep correct. dive for sure all right well okay let's get into it but before we do that remind our listeners and let our new listeners know how we handle spoilers on this episode <laughs> all right so eventually rachel and i are going to spoil this whole movie but first mm-hmm. i'm going to tell you about the director and the making of the movie and then we'll give you our non-spoiler thoughts and then Rachel will give you a little warning again, and then we'll dive into everything, and we'll spoil the whole thing, ending, everything. But this movie is available on Tubi for free, so it's easy to go watch. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's like an hour and 20 minutes? Yeah, not even a big time commitment. Yeah. All right, awesome. So with that all explained, let's get into it. Ariel, tell me about this director and a little bit about the production of the film. All right. So Stephanie Rothman was born in 1936 in Patterson, New Jersey, but she was raised in L.A. and then went on to study sociology at UC Berkeley. She fell in love with filmmaking after watching The Seventh Seal, but at the time she did not realize that like making movies was even an option for her. She really wanted to be a writer-director, but she didn't know how to make that happen. Eventually, in 1960, she ended up going to USC to study film. And while she was there, she met her husband, Charles S. Swartz, who would go on to make movies with her, like, throughout her life. Like, sometimes he would be the producer, they would co-write things together, sometimes she would produce, and he would direct. They just had, like, a real partnership. Mm. So she actually became the first woman to ever be awarded the Directors Guild of America Fellowship while she was in school. And that, combined with her academic qualifications is what first drew the attention of famed low-budget exploitation filmmaker (laughs) Roger Corman. Oh, boy. And in 1964, right after she graduated, he offered her a job as his assistant. So apparently Corman really became a mentor to her. He was super encouraging, and he really had faith in her abilities. And while she learned kind of all of the basic skill set to become a filmmaker while she was in school, he was the one who taught her how to work fast and to work on a tight schedule to save money, because that was obviously his thing. That's great. I mean, because if there's anything we know, it's you have to be able to, like, there's not going to be the same sort of, like, permissiveness around women directors like you need to be able to be efficient and yeah oh yeah nobody's giving you a big budget never squeak that (laughs) wheel at that point yeah yeah so when she first started working with Corman she helped him make this movie called Beach Ball and Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet and another one called Queen of Blood 
And then in 1966, he finally gave her this film called Bloodbath. Apparently, like Mm -hmm. two different directors had shot parts of this movie. And so she had to like reshoot about 30 minutes of footage and then cut it all together and try to make something. She kind of calls it a mishmash of a film. But her work impressed Corman so much that he was willing to give her her first directing gig. And in 1965, she shot It's a Bikini World. (laughs) (laughs) It's an art house about the dark heart of man. Of course. uh, Of course. The hero's journey. So she shot this in 1965. It didn't premiere until 1967. But it is the only film in that beach party subgenre that was ever directed by a woman. Oh, and well, well, that's actually kind of awesome. It is kind of awesome. And apparently she was able to like inject the film with a pro-feminism plot line that a lot of reviewers really like. So Interesting. Because yeah. we're going to definitely be talking about whether or not the movie night tonight we're talking about is feminist yeah. or not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on that. Uh-huh. Um, Okay, so after making It's a Bikini World, she unfortunately became pretty disillusioned with filmmaking, and she ended up taking a break until she came back to work as a production associate on the Corman comedy called Gas. It's like gas, but with four S's in 1970. (laughs) Oh, I like it. Yeah. Where is like that kind of naming today? I know, I right? want a little bit like, yeah, like a, a novelty naming, event naming. Like yeah, it, it makes add you a kind little of camp in there. Yes, a little more camp. We would all be, I think, a happier and better people if we had a little more camp in our lives. Oh, I agree. So later that same year in 1970, Corman started his new production and distribution company, New World Pictures, and he asked Rothman to write and direct his um like i think it was the second feature for the studio and it was called student nurses which is about four young beautiful student nurses okay (laughs) this is the one i've heard of so yes yeah Mm -hmm. yeah this one she's well known for it's become definitely like a kind of cult classic uh there was an independent regional film sub distributor who co-invested with corman on this film and they had requested a film about pretty nurses that had as much nudity and violence as you were allowed (laughs) to push with an and still keep an r rating and like not go you know, past that. I assume the Hayes Code is lifted by this point. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so she said that you really had to push that limit, but you could not show pubic hair, genitals, or simulated intercourse. So those were all no-nos. Okay. Interesting. It's kind of interesting to hear about the evolution of the way sexuality is. It is really is. Yeah. Being presented on screen because, yeah, this would obviously be post Hayes Code. And so everybody's mm-hmm. like transgressing. We're in like counterculture era and uh the sexual revolution but yes. still we're like but no pews right exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's a step too far damn it yes all right so when she made student nurses she had to stick to these guidelines but she told interview magazine that she added in quote unromanticized sexual assault attachment Ooh. to a patient with terminal illness who dies a street riot by an aspiring minority group Lack of adequate health care for the poor, abortion, the results of taking LSD, and the seemingly never-ending consequences at the time of the Vietnam War. We uh, gotta watch this movie. I know, right? <laughs> Sold! <laughs> yeah, and she sort of reminded people at the time that she put abortion into a film that this was prior to Roe v. Wade passing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was kind of how she went about, like, handling making these exploitation films is that she would make sure to put in all of the things needed to kind of satisfy those economic requirements and what the producers wanted her to do, but then add in as much social and political commentary as she could. Basically, she didn't like making exploitation films, but it was kind of the only work she could get as a woman in the film industry at the time, so she made it work. Yeah. Oh, we're definitely going to. This is adding all of these layers and wrinkles mm-hmm. to my thoughts around this movie we're going to be talking about today. Because, And I definitely want to know what you think, because maybe you disagree. But yeah, that is that is so interesting. Because I was the one thing you told me before we started was that something was going to make me mad. Mm-hmm. And so far and watching the movie, I was like, I think I know what it is. And now I no longer do. <laughs> oh, you thought it had something to do with the actual movie. I thought it had something to do with maybe like her politics. Oh, no, 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 no. Because I think 
her politics are really muddy in this movie. Mm-hmm, so, sure. but yeah, okay, sorry. <laughs> so she talked about the fact that she wasn't morally opposed to having the violence and nudity in her films, but she Party. didn't like to put it in there in a really crude way that they were usually shot. She wanted to make the films that were transgressive, but without being repulsive. And so she tended to use kind of creative shooting techniques to help mitigate some of those factors. And when she was writing the scripts, because she did that too, she would add in comedic moments to help Mm -hmm. control the tone of her films. Ah, Yeah, I can definitely see that. That's really Mm -hmm. interesting because I do feel like we're going to be, we are playing in sort of like this weird liminal space between art house and exploitation. Yes. Now her films at the time were actually praised by some feminist scholars, not all, but some really (laughs) could see the things that she was trying to put in. That doesn't make any sense. Well, I can't even imagine. (laughs) Because they could see the kind of social political commentary that she was trying to put into her films. But then as feminism started to evolve, she started getting a lot harsher critiques. And I think that was kind of hard for her at the time. Interesting. Like, which wave was it? Because I feel like the first wave is pretty, I mean, that's suffragette stuff, right? Second wave. I guess it would be second. Yeah. Is there like a 1.5 wave down with it before <laughs> we got to the, because yeah, but it, it's, second it's wave kind of sounds pretty... like what happens is like there were a couple of feminist scholars who liked her work. Then okay. everybody sort of turned against her. But then since then, in more like modern times, people have like reappraised her work and can kind of see what she was trying to do, even if it's imperfect because of the framework she was having to work within. Yeah. I mean, this is something we have talked a lot about, especially mm-hmm. with these older films, like when we talked about Slumber Party Massacre, yeah. or even Friday's Dead, you know, that yeah. these economic concerns or these constraints, like mm-hmm. like social constraints, really, they can hamper some of the messaging, but it's almost more incredible, even though it's an imperfect message, that it's there, it's present right, at all, it because at all. it is, yeah. it was like fought for tooth and nail or mm-hmm. slipped under the radar. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So student nurses ended up being a huge hit. It made Corman a bunch of money and ended up spawning a slew of nurse movies made oh, by goodness. New World Pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so next he, because of that, gave her the option to make a student nurse's sequel. Um, she wasn't interested. She's like, I have already done that. I don't want to do it again. He also gave her the option to make a woman in prison film called The Big Doll House. Oh, God. <laughs> but she wasn't interested in that one either. So instead, she directed and co-wrote The Velvet Vampire in 1971, a.k.a. Cemetery Girls, one of its alternate titles. Okay. Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely some cemetery action in this. Yeah. There sure is. <laughs> uh-huh. So at the time, she and her husband had just written this script called The Student Teachers, but the producer, Larry Woolner, wanted to make a vampire movie instead because of the success of Daughters of Darkness, which had just come out. Mm-hmm. And Rothman had wanted to make a movie where vampire, where the vampire was female and the protagonist would also be a woman instead of just having the woman be victims. So at the time, she said, quote, While in the Dracula films, both men and women were the victims of vampires, it was the women who always seemed to endure the ecstasy of having their blood sucked while lying passively in their beds. If men were assaulted by vampires, it was usually while battling them, and they either destroyed the vampire or met a violent death themselves. So I decided to reverse this convention and have the men enjoy a masochistic orgasmic death by vampire while the woman battled back. Hmm, I like it. Mm -hmm. I like it. Interesting. So they wrote the script for the movie over the course of three months and added in some comedic moments to kind of set it apart from other vampire movies that were coming out at the time because there are actually quite a few vampire movies that came (laughs) out in the early 70s. Yeah, I'm thinking of like all the Ingrid Pitt Hammer stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So the film stars Celeste Yarnell as Diane Le Fanu, the vampire, and She said of working with Rothman, quote, it was my first experience having a female director, and it was remarkable, especially concerning the sexual scenes. Stephanie was very sensitive. She closed the set during the more explicit shots, and there were often just Michael and I and the cameraman. And Michael plays opposite her as her husband. Or not her husband, the guy that, you know. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Lee. Yeah, Lee, exactly. 
So unfortunately, The Velvet Vampire completely bombed at the box office. Really? Uh, Yeah, it did not do well. The LA Times reviewer at the time said, quote, Miss Rothman is at her best in love scenes, handled with rare sensual beauty and taste. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. there is little else to be said for The Velvet Vampire. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I agree with them. Okay. Okay. So Rothman blames some of the poor performance of the film on the way it was marketed and distributed because it's kind of like what you were saying earlier. It wasn't a traditional horror movie or a full-blown exploitation movie. So sometimes it was shown in art house theaters and other Mm. times it was shown kind of as like a schlocky film in drive-ins. And so it, you know... It just didn't gain that same kind of level of success. But right. since then, it's gained a bit of a cult following, which is kind of nice. I wish they would make a, a like remaster it. You know oh, what I mean? I know. I it's, know. A, it's a name that always shows up on every list. Like when we started this out and we were like building our list of things we were going to cover, truly every list has this on there of like women directing. Yeah, I'm surprised films. nobody's done like a 4K restoration from that original 35 millimeter because it would, yeah. I'm sure it looks so, it would look so much better. Yeah, because it's so like, it, it feels desaturated mm-hmm. because of the graininess of the. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a shame because there are some lush visuals in this, but I'm getting into my review, so I'm going to shut up. <laughs> so Rothman and her husband, um, after this, they left New World Pictures. And they actually went to help set up Dimension Pictures, which had just started. So, yeah. So they left Corman because apparently he refused to pay them a living wage. Mm. (laughs) Like one of the ways that Mm. he saved money was by giving directors like really low salaries because he was like his thought process was I'm giving these brand new directors a chance to make a movie and to have it shown in theaters. And so that's kind of the payment, that exchange, you know? Oh, yes. Exposure. Yes. The greatest of all currencies for yep. creatives. <laughs> I've certainly worked for that. You know, I've done oh, that yeah. plenty of times. <laughs> and guess what? It didn't do. Keep a roof over my head. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's the thing about not getting money. <laughs> yeah. Right. So on the other hand, uh, Dimension Pictures offer them a better salary and a small stake in this like fledgling company. Unfortunately, though, this did not give Rothman any more creative control than she had with Corman's operation because she was still being kind of pigeonholed into making exploitation films. She didn't always get to pick the subject. She also had to still make sure that there was nudity and violence. And I guess she didn't really have a ton of say in the cast either because she was kind of forced to pick the most beautiful, like the hottest actors Mm. and not always the most talented ones. And that was a frustration as a director. Mm. Yeah. So in 1973, she made her first film for Dimension called Group Marriage, which showed both female and male desire on screen, which is like a new concept. And she said to Fangoria, quote, I'm very tired of the whole tradition in Western art in which women are always presented nude and men aren't. I'm not going to dress women and undress men. That would be a form of tortured vengeance. But I certainly am going to undress men. And the result is probably a more healthy environment because one group of people presenting another in a vulnerable, weaker, more servile position is always distorted. Ooh, I love it. I really Mm -hmm. like Stephanie. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. So after that, she made Terminal Island, Beyond Atlantis, and The Working Girls. She and her husband then <laughs> left. What's that? I'm just laughing at the names. <laughs> I'm just over here chuckling to myself. Don't worry about me. <laughs> so after making all of those movies, she and her husband left Dimension in 1975. After that, she tried to break out of making exploitation films, but she could not get financing. And she also tried to get work in TV, and she couldn't do that either. Apparently, she had really good agents, but she had a hard time getting meetings. Is this the part where I'm supposed to be mad? Because I am. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just like that, I went from chuckling to being like, where's my time machine? I got to go cut some Uh people. (laughs) Yeah, it was when I was looking up this part that I wrote that to you. So in an article with the Austin Chronicle back in 2010, she said, quote, the irony was that I made them in order to she's talking about making exploitation films. She Mm -hmm. says the irony was that I made them in order to prove that I had the skills to make more ambitious films, but no one would give me the chance. Then there was the other reason, the so-called elephant in the room. 
I was a woman. No one told me directly, but I often learned indirectly that this was the decisive reason why many producers wouldn't agree to meet me. If that sounds exaggerated, remember that I worked in the American film industry from 1965 to 1974, and some of those years I was the only woman directing films. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to say it's so different now, and it is definitely different now, but you mm -hmm. can feel the echoes of that even today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And just as like a bit of context, Jonathan Dem, the guy who directed Silence of the Lambs, Martin oh, Scorsese, yeah. Peter Bogdanovich, Jonathan Kaplan, Francis Co- Ford Coppola, all got their starts working with Roger Corman. But unlike the men he worked with, Rothman was like never able to graduate to bigger budget movies and those prestigious movies. Just hold never on for a second. Them. I got to go break some shit real quick. <laughs> <laughs> That is infuriating. (laughs) I know. I know. And if you remember, a similar thing happened to Amy Holden Jones, who directed Slumber Party Massacre with Corman, right? Right. She was, unlike uh, Rothman, she was able to get consistent work as a writer for movies and now TV, but she never got the opportunity to direct big movies or really any movies ever again. She directed for her entire career. I keep thinking about our modern equivalent of this, which Mm -hmm. of course is Jason Blum. Yeah. And you can see in the beginning with that article where he says women don't want to direct horror, how that it was still such a belief. Mm -hmm. But what is exciting is he seems to have heard the feedback and we're seeing women directed horror films in theaters. We're seeing them on video on demand and we're seeing we're. When we get these repeated, it like it makes me even appreciate more when we're getting repeated. We're going back and reviewing the next movie by women yeah. we've already discussed because you can see what a trap it is. Like just making one hit film or mm-hmm. well re- critically received film still is no guarantee of opportunities in the future. Um, yeah. But I don't know. There, it's, are yeah, it's exciting parallels. to see that things are very slowly starting to change. You know. And let's hope they continue to do so because we want to pretend that the arc of justice, brings, <laughs> you know, but like we it, it's it's more cyclical than we would like to admit. So hopefully that's not the case. But yeah, God. <gasps> so after trailblazers, this, man, they, yeah. they make you they make you excited and also dark you out. <laughs> oh, I know. I mean, because like Rachel Talalay, when we interviewed her, yeah. she said talked about the same thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yep. 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 So after this, unfortunately, Rothman tried to make it in the film industry for about another 10 years. She wrote a couple of scripts, sold a few things, nothing got made into a movie. And then after that decade, she finally gave up on the whole enterprise and went into commercial real estate instead. And that was the end of her film career. Wow. Yeah. That's that's a little heartbreaking. It is. It is. It makes you wonder what she would have done had been given the opportunity. Yeah. To just do something that was strictly what she wanted to do or closer to it. Mm-hmm. Such a lost opportunity. It's really sad. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And now she's 87, which is awesome. And is she still with us? She's still with us. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, super cool. Um, over the years, they have done like retrospectives of her work in different places or like shown them in art house theaters. And she's gone to speak sometimes about them. So, yeah. That's so great. Thank you so much for doing that, Ariel. I know you were joking that you had done too much research, but like, for one thing, I thought it was fascinating. But also, I think hearing her story really highlighted how much her story deserves to be told in the way that, you know, like in the kind of depth that you just told it. So I'm actually really glad that you did the deep dive. Oh, good. good. Great job on that. Thank you. All right. Well, let's get into what we thought about this movie. I'm going to give you a little voice, a little break. I'll Mm -hmm. give you my non-spoiler review of this film uh, before we get into the spoiler zone. Yeah. So I actually thought this was a very interesting movie. I do not think it's one of those ones that has mass appeal, which is ironic since clearly that was what Corman was going for. <laughs> I know, it's true. That was, that was the agenda, right? But I don't, yeah. it's actually quite niche. I think if you enjoy exploitation or vampires or art house films or just cinematic oddities, that this is definitely a journey worth taking. But I do think that you have, that it, you need to be clear that this is not like a standard sort of exploitation film there. Mm-hmm. She clearly has a, a an artistic vision and there are times where those two things clash a little bit. So th- 
the end result is a little strange. And I, th- which is why I say if you like cinematic oddities, you definitely want to check yeah. this out. <laughs> That's a good way of describing it. Like the selling point for me of this film is not necessarily the plot or even some of the performances because hearing how casting works makes sense because I do think we have a very large spectrum in terms of um, acting ability. Yeah. I think the person who plays the vampire is probably the standout for me, whereas our lead, she's struggling a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But what I do think is the selling point of this is the visuals of this. There are some really unique and beautiful shots and surrealistic moments, particularly in dream sequences, yeah. that I was actually quite moved by. And I could see I could see a lot of the things like I could see this having influenced things going down the road. Like, like I the myself, love witch. Well, yeah, we're going to get into that <laughs> for sure. But I was also thinking of like the the dream sequences. I was I was like getting like Tarsum Singh vibes. Mm, uh-huh. Like, yeah, like so aesthetically, this thing is there are so many like surrealistic and beautiful delights to be had. And like you said, if you loved the love witch, then you definitely need to see this because it, while it doesn't hit some of the sort of same feminist beats or the same sort of like um, tongue in cheek humor of of the love which like I can't imagine that that movie isn't like somewhat influenced by this movie. Oh, yeah. You can feel its DNA in that film. I knew that that film was definitely inspired by this era genre of films, but to see this one, I'm like, there, mm-hmm. there's no way that this didn't have at least some minor impact on, on that film. And I think that this movie, there's a lot of real beauty to this film. I think that there is some humor that works in this film. There are some clunkier moments. Like there's some editing issues where I'm just like, wait, wait, hold on. I've completely lost where we're at. Um, (laughs) But I think the key here, this is the key is you got to just like let the film wash over you. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to behave like people and that's okay. It has a very dreamy, languid pace, and that's okay. If you just decide to let the film kind of just to experience the film and try instead of trying to like pick apart every little thing, it's an interesting film. And I think if you're a horror fan, if you are a, a feminist horror fan, if you are a fan of women in horror, this is absolutely worth your time. And it's, as Ariel said, very easy to get your hands on. It's on Tubi. It's the runtime is an hour and 20 minutes. I highly recommend that you check this out. Yeah. How about you, Missy? Non-spoiler review. Yeah, I mean, no, I I think I agree with pretty much everything that you said. I was excited to see something like this from the 70s, from the exploitation genre that was directed by a woman. Uh I don't think I knew exactly what I was getting into when I started. And it is a really interesting combination because I think – Like, I've seen enough exploitation movies where I feel like this one has both less sex and less violence than I was expecting. Yes. Which is interesting because, you know, she was trying to, like, put as much as she had to in to satisfy the producers without, like, going overboard. And I think you can definitely feel that. And I think you can also feel, like, her artistic touch in this, too. Like you were saying, I mean, with the surrealistic scenes, definitely. But there are some other scenes we'll talk about later which are just like shot so beautifully and in such an interesting way that I think you could see like, like it makes me sad that she didn't get to make anything different. Cause I think if she had been able to step outside this genre, she might've made something really beautiful. Agreed. I also like love a vampire in the desert. Like we both love yes. in the dark and a girl walks home alone at midnight. So that's exciting. But I think what's interesting here is that it's totally sun drenched the entire time. Like it's a very different yeah. take as opposed mm-hmm. to the sort of dark gritty version of the desert. This version is like a lot prettier and brighter, obviously. It's very dreamlike. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we'll talk about it once we can get into spoilers, but I do think there's some interesting things done here with like the way that the camera focuses on both the men and uh, both the male character and the women when they're nude. Yeah. And I also think that although there are some places where I wouldn't call it like I wouldn't call these feminist decisions now. I think it's interesting the kind of way that some of that sexual liberation was injected into this movie. And we'll, mm-hmm. we can talk about specifics later. But I would just say yes to everything Rachel said. It's 
beautiful and it's like this weird point in the history of women directing horror movies so i think it's worth seeing for that alone but i also think like there's enough here to entertain you too both in like the beauty but also like the odd moments of comedy and like the weird things that happen and the interesting myth behind the vampires in this movie which are pretty different than we're used to yeah i just have to warn you it's gonna make you want to have sex with a dune buggy just just know that going in it'll be fine (laughs) (laughs) good looking outrage (laughs) well i mean i didn't write the movie i'm just letting people know what the content is that's all that's all so maybe this also like influenced titan (laughs) right (laughs) awesome okay so with that you now have your marching orders you should go watch this movie if you haven't seen it already And I say that now because I don't want to spoil anything from you if you are spoiler averse. And we are headed directly like a dune buggy speeding through the desert into the spoiler zone. So grab your phone, hit that old pause button, put it back in your purse, go or or pants or fan pack or um, I don't know, other things people put their purses or their phones in uh anyway i am done (laughs) vamping i am out of i am out of practice clearly so hit the old pause come on back because we are now in the spoiler zone starting with my synopsis although my synopsis is not super super spoilery all right so this film follows susan and lee a young newlywed couple and while they're at an art exhibit at the stoker museum Mm -hmm. they are introduced to a young beautiful woman named Diane Le Fanu, which I don't know if you caught the reference for Le Fanu, but that is the last name of the author of uh, Carmilla. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So there's some there's some little, you know, yeah. hints of what's going on here. Uh, she invites them to come visit her beautiful house out in the middle of the desert. And at first, Susan is reluctant because she suspects that Diane is trying to seduce her husband. And she's not wrong. She's not wrong. Um, But what she doesn't realize is that she's also intent on seducing Susan as well. So, (laughs) (laughs) yes. So they go there. They have a little dune buggy fun. They go into some mines. um, You know, vampire stuff, I guess. Question mark. Um, But at night, they start having strange dreams in which, you guessed it. uh, Diane is seducing first Lee and then Susan. Also, uh, we find out she uh, has a very strange room, a voyeur room behind a a one-way mirror where (laughs) she watches them and does weird eyes at them and then enters their (laughs) dreams. Uh, She has another dark secret. She's not just a voyeur, but she is also a vampire who is in deep mourning over the loss of her husband and plans on feeding on the couple so they will be with her forever. And that is a very, you know, surface level synopsis of the Velvet Vampire. Yeah. But let's get deeper into it. (laughs) Yeah. Let's start by talking about this desert setting because I actually think it's a super interesting choice. Mm -hmm. I like the remoteness of it. I like the unexpectedness of it. And I like how almost like being set in the desert, like you just move a little slower and that works with sort of the slower, like I said, more languid tone of this film. Like it, it almost like this weird quicksand like atmosphere of just the heat and the sand and the remoteness. (laughs) And it's actually one of my favorite things about the film is because it's just so counter to everything we know about vampires. And it also kind of speaks to why she could go unnoticed for so long. She's so not suspicious on the surface, but also like, what is a vampire doing in the desert cruising around in her dune buggy? You would never guess that she was a member of the undead. Right. I know we're so used to vampires being in these like huge mansions on dark and stormy nights, you know, that it's interesting to have it be so out there in the sunshine like that. It could not be less gothic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I like the house too. Yeah. It's real cool. I mean, it's all the cool like mid-century vibes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which speaks to some one of the other things I love about this, which we've already kind of alluded to, is the dream is all of the visuals of this. Like the dream sequences are incredible. And I think we'll go in depth with that. I'll let you I'll save that for you. But I mean, also moments of her like lying in uh in the grave and then yes! in, her, in the coffin, in the like red silk lined coffin, nude with the sort of bluish tinted dead husband like all of that is just so stunning and these are the moments where i was like i want 
the richness of this color. I feel like yep. I'm getting cheated out mm-hmm. of how beautiful this probably is on that 35 millimeter print. Yeah, because you can see how beautiful it is. I mean, yeah, when she's laying naked like uh-huh. that, draped over this dead dude, like it's yeah. so pretty. It's if so I was like cool a looking. poor tattoo person, like yeah. that's the tattoo Ooh. I would want, like on my leg. Wouldn't that be so awesome? Do it. I don't know. That's a really big commitment <laughs> to go from no tattoos to like a whole like naked lady in a coffin on my leg. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll get a butterfly first. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I get a t-shirt. Maybe I get a t-shirt with <laughs> But also like seriously, the costuming in this is so cool. I love, you know, I, you know how I feel about like a mid-century style. This is oh, definitely yeah. like right in the middle of the Venn diagram of of aesthetics that I love. So she has all these beautiful, like her flowing red gown in the dream sequences mm-hmm. is stunning, but also all of her cloaks and her hats because, you know, she has to protect herself from the sun, her gloves. Yeah, great hats. Yeah. She's so chic. Everything oh, she wears is so incredible. Like even in the chase scene at the end, she has that sort of like mm-hmm. coat jacket and then the, the hat. Like it's just – It's so – it's both totally unlike a vampire aesthetic, but also there's something, like, so striking about it that it feels like a modern interpretation of, like, a gothic style. Yeah, absolutely, because she might not have that cloak with, like, the high black collar and stuff, but she has, like – a feminine modern version of that. Yes. And I love it. It's so stunning. And then I love the contrast of her costuming versus Susan's costuming. Mm-hmm. You know, she has all these deep reds and oranges and um and really striking uh, prime color not prime colors. What am I primary colors? And then you go to to Susan and it's like very light, sort of um a lot of pastels. Yeah, or like or- that cream sweater she keeps wearing and yeah, or even her bathing suit mm-hmm. is kind of like a washed out tan, kind of like a maybe leopardy print looking. I love that bathing suit. Everything everybody's wearing, <laughs> the little pinafores, all of that are so yeah. stunning. And what is interesting is the way that not only are they visually really enjoyable, but they they each of the characters kind of has a, a palette of mm-hmm. their own that adjusts depending on what, the power dynamics of the relationships. So like... We've got Diane, like I said, like in reds and and oranges and pinks, and unless she's seducing Susan, at which point her palette really pales down. It's like becomes whites and yellows, and like she's much less threatening, and the power dynamic is more like uh, I think it's a little bit less clearly defined because I think she actually really is interested in Susan in a way that she's not necessarily interested in. Yeah. And then Lee wears blue at the beginning of the film, but as it goes on, he starts wearing stripes, so he's sort of like compromised in terms of his masculinity and then Juan poor Juan's just wearing pink the whole time and then at the very end sort of the climactic scene you know Susan has now has that like brown sort of dark earth tone thing on and Susan is now in a white cape and black hat like it's just it's so interesting if you track sort of the color story of these characters because you know I was just watching the costumes I had a feeling yeah I mean that's (laughs) they were so pretty and like they changed clothes so many times throughout the film too for like all the different activities they would do throughout the day that you got like even though it only took place over I think like a long weekend kind of you got like a dozen outfits per person it was delicious like yeah. i want to wear everything that susan everything that susan wore like that wait looks- susan or diane the vampire i'm oh, sorry da- well honestly both. either <laughs> but like especially diane when she comes downstairs in that pink feathery robe so cute. yeah oh i left my body <laughs> it's just incredible i and even liked one- that like pink fluffy blanket that they had sex on on the no, ground that was her yeah. robe that oh, was her that robe. was her robe. Wasn't that was her it? robe. Oh, yeah, fuck, that's and so right. like the next morning, like power yes, move. Susan's so like cool. puts it down. She's like, "Let's have a picnic on this." I know I like, that dynamic bitch. between the two of them is so interesting to watch how it evolves over the course of the film, where she's I like mean, has I, this jealousy at first, and then it morphs. Mm-hmm. You know, I I want. I actually wish we had had more of that. Like, oh, that's, I agree. The most interesting mm-hmm. relationship in the in and tension in that relationship is actually really interesting, complex. And I mean, I'm not an expert of film at this time, but it doesn't feel like what I assume movies were like at this time. <laughs> and that feels very much like the influence of of Rothman. Yeah. Um, and you know, there are definitely clear exploitation vibes here. You know, you get the set, but at the same time, I could feel like Stephanie trying to make a art film that has boobs you know what I mean yeah well absolutely because I think you know it's not like 
uh, naked woman like running around boobs bouncing kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a there's an art to it. And I also even just think like the way this film starts with Diane being accosted by this guy who tries to rape her. And before he's able to do anything, she stabs him mm-hmm. and kills him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that felt like a very intentional mes- message to me, you know? Yeah. And it always taps into this like my sort of wish fulfillment of being able to be a person who just like yes. moves through the world regardless of the time of day, regardless of the neighborhood. But like you have so much power, whether it's perceived or not. Right. That, that you can you be can fearless just, in that way. I mean, it's why I love, I loved, uh, I mean, one of the many reasons mm-hmm. I love a girl walks home alone at night yeah. is because like, and the whole point of that is she can just skate around mm-hmm. in the dead of night without fear. Like that's such a, and that's, I think, my favorite thing about vampires is and specifically female vampires is that element of just yeah. like I am the apex predator. I don't have to move through the world with fear. Like that's so uh, it's just it's like I said, it's like wish fulfillment for me. I want to move yeah. the world like that. Yeah. Yeah, I I really agree. I mean, yeah, to have that kind of power, it would be like, it would be yeah. so amazing. And yeah. it is something you think about every time you watch these movies. It's like, I couldn't do those things, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, but, I have a lot more thoughts about like the politics of this. Let's talk about why it don't, then. Oh, no, sorry. I was going to say, if you want to like start talking about how you felt that maybe we can like wrap up with our thoughts about the politics of this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I feel like a little bit mixed in that I think there are definitely places where maybe this movie like isn't perfect but i honestly think for the time period that it was made for the fact that it was a roger corman joint for the fact that it was supposed to be an exploitation movie this is like wildly progressive i think that we get to see like like almost how like sexually liberated the women in this film are i mean at the very beginning when we're introduced to susan like one of the first things she says when somebody asks her like you know, what are you doing here or whatever? And she's like, I just come or have you ever been here before or something? And she's like, I just come here when I'm looking for ass. Like that's literally yeah. the first thing she <laughs> yeah. says. Yeah. Um, she puts her foot down and won't have sex with her husband at one point. I think the way in which Diane moves through the world, the way that she is the voyeur ogling them, mm-hmm. the way that she is the one who is controlling the male fantasy, even mm. um, the way You're that you're selling she- me on this a little bit. I'm not going to lie. What's that? <laughs> you're selling me on this a little bit. <laughs> I had a little more complicated feelings, but I, I like what you're saying. <laughs> and also like those dream sequences alone, like she's controlling the fantasy. She's deciding who she wants to sleep with and who she doesn't. She's deciding that she wants to have a relationship with a woman. And Susan gets to do the same thing. And even the way that her and her husband, like, talk about the way that they have sex with other people, I think, is different. And just, like, once you get into 80s, like, slasher movies, for instance, there's so much more puritanical values that make their way into horror at that point. And I think it's interesting to see, you know, a decade before that, what things what what was happening and i feel like she's pushing the envelope here a lot and i really liked it and i definitely think that you could make a lot of criticisms about this movie but i personally think that you can see stephanie rothman's like fingerprints all over this Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i see what you're saying like i do think it's interesting especially in the scene where like where she rejects the husband like he's Mm -hmm. He's already like gone down on her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. And then she's like, nah. And he's pouty and not happy about it. And it like it kind of creates this permission structure for him in his mind to go and yeah. be unfaithful. And then his ideas about free love or he gets to hook up with this vampire, <laughs> but she can't. And she's like, no, no, no. If we have no rules, we have no rules. I'm going right. to do what I want to do. So like those things, I think the sexual liberation portions of this are actually pretty great. Yeah, um, especially the way that you describe them. I have some complicated feelings about what I think it says in the end about all of that, but but Explain. I do like those. Okay, so like I do think that there is some really transgressive stuff in this that I appreciate there, and we've talked about this, like the sexual liberation mm-hmm. stuff. And there's so many contradictions in this film. Like it's this erotic vampire tale set against counterculture and free love in the background, and we do see the like narrative being pushed about sexuality and presentation of sexuality and like who gets to enjoy sex all of those things on screen are pretty uh, uh, progressive yeah but i think where we end up is a little more conservative like who's punished 
who's punished, how they're punished. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we see this, the, you know, uh, the vampire, this awesome husband devouring bisexual <laughs> vampire being yeah. hunted down and killed by a pack of like hippie Christians with crosses. Yeah. <laughs> it <laughs> almost fair. in some ways reads a little bit like a cautionary tale of women's mm. lib rather than like letting her be like this powerful yeah. unbound woman. She's also pretty fucking miserable. You know what I mean? Like her desires are un like she's unsatiable and lonely and alone and trapped in the in where she's living because she was unable her desires were so powerful and so unsatisfied like un, she was unable to satiate them that she killed her husband like those yeah kinds of no i definitely feel- see what you're saying but that's also like a vampire thing like if you look at yeah. other vampire movies and vampire books and stuff like that's often the theme Right. You know but that. I would also say that they're not super progressive in terms of their <laughs> politics. So like I I see I agree with what you're saying and I'm not like saying that this is a, yeah. a bad or not a feminist movie. I feel like it's muddy. I feel like yeah. that's I, what I'm saying. It's yeah, well, the experience, I think, but I'm like hmm, Yeah, I, I mean I, I think feel about I this. think that's part of like probably the conundrum that the director was facing, you know? Yeah. Cuz I think if she had done something where like the vampire got away and got to live like happily ever after like uh i doubt that movie would have been made you know what i mean right but yeah i see what you're saying i mean i think especially like that that very end beat where you know it's also weird because everybody just like jumps on the bandwagon of like showing crosses to this random woman which seems like uh, I think you needed about 10 more minutes or something in this film maybe to make that work and not feel kind of bizarre. But I take your point that she is ultimately the one who is punished. I mean, I do think that like... But it's more than that. It's also the way that she... When we find out what her internal life is like, like yeah. he, she has all of the sort of hallmarks and the appearance of like a very independent, mm-hmm. liberated woman. She's sexually liberated. She has her own house. She does what she wants. She yeah. takes what she wants. But like it's ultimately incredibly empty and unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where I think I I like I have an issue is because yeah. I feel like it I get that it's the vampire thing, but in the context of this otherwise sort of like these feminist ideas to undercut it by saying like, yeah, Mm -hmm. she has, she has all of the hallmarks of liberation, but it's ultimately hollow and empty and she dies at the end. You know what I mean? That's where it gets muddy. That's, that's all. No, I totally agree with you. Cause I think that for like 90% of this film, it feels like a step forward. Yeah. And then it, it undercuts it for sure by that ending. And I don't think it's like even mitigated by the fact that, that Susan is also like a liberated woman in this and she gets away because she's not the one that has like, she doesn't get away. (laughs) Ultimately, even she doesn't get away. Oh yeah. That's there's that last beat where like, damn it. I forgot about that. Yeah. (laughs) Cause it's so weird. Oh my God. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. I thought I forgot about the blood disease thing too until just now. I mean, but, like, I think that was him just misleading her. I think so I too. Yeah. Yeah. I but it's an was... interesting idea. Like I almost yeah. want to see a movie about that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like watching movies from this time period, I think that I, this is not like an unusual problem in right. movies where yeah. women are punished in this way and where women are like shown to be powerful or to be able to kind of uh, make their own decisions about things. And then that's like taken away in some uh-huh. way. Yeah. So this definitely falls into that that pattern. For me, I think the reason why I was so sold on it until mm-hmm. like that ending is just because I have seen a lot of exploitation films that feel real yucky. Yeah. No, that, <laughs> I have also yeah, I seen it. a lot that are a lot of fun and like I understand why people love them because they can be a blast. I mean, like this movie almost didn't have enough of that kind of stuff. If we had had like more pitchfork deaths and stuff like that, I would have been a happy camper personally. <laughs> but they can also have this like kind of gross undertone to them. And this movie. Sleazy. This movie doesn't feel sleazy. Yeah. Th- this like evades that and has so much more like artfulness injected mm-hmm. into it. And um, it just makes me wonder like, yeah, if she hadn't had the constraints of having to work within the exploitation genre and with such a small budget, like what what she would have had to say about the world, you know, because if she's able to put this much into this kind of a film. Yeah. Like, what if she hadn't had to also have like the nudity or that kind of an ending, you know? Yeah. 
no, I agree completely. That's why when you were yeah. talking about her history, I was just like, I just kept thinking about the really inspired moments in this and, yeah. and like the true vision, artistic vision mm-hmm. to get this kind of artistic vision as a woman at this time into an exploitation film. Like that is a massive feat. And right. so I would, yeah, like if, if all things were just, we would have seen her like magnum opus, like some beautiful surrealistic thing. Like I, I know she had no money, but I think you can tell the ingenuity because mm-hmm. that bed in the middle of, of the, um, the desert. And then that propped up mirror is so it's just, it looks like a Magritte painting. It's yeah, beautiful. it's so simple, but it's so gorgeous. And then like the uh, the flowing red gown red and everything gown. in slow motion with that cool music. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that scene inspired a specific look in The Love Witch. Like when yeah. she's when she's doing her spell and she's laying on the pentagram, mm-hmm. she has that red dress. On. Yep. Like, I, I would not be surprised if that was a, a moment pulled. Up. I think it's direct inspiration. Yeah. yeah stunning it's it's visually so it is so delicious i need for like vinegar syndrome or criterion or mm-hmm. somebody to remaster this film because i want to see it in its full glory at least even just those scenes just those surrealistic scenes are so beautiful they're just gorgeous and yeah. i love the like him running and the power the power dynamic the way it shifts over the as we keep revisiting this dream sequence i love that moment when she's like pulled him far enough away and she's mm-hmm. like okay and now i'm done with you Yep, and moves moving in. <laughs> yeah, like, and then he's just like, like that dream logic of be un- being able, unable to reach there is just, yeah, I don't know. Inspired. And at one point, really Susan's cool. like, that it was my dream this time, you know? Yes. Oh, so cool. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. There's like these really inspired moments yeah. and moments of of like very cool feminist ideas. And that's why I'm a little sad that, you know, there were the I agree because it. like we get to spend a lot of time in those dream sequences, which are essentially mm-hmm. about a woman's sexual fantasies, you know? And I mean, the sexual awakening. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that yes. there's really cool stuff in that. And just her being that like almost creepy voyeuristic predator sitting in that room. Yes. Those scenes are beautiful too. Like I love the setting and I love all of the tight shots of her eyes and Mm -hmm. the slow fades between that and into the dream world. All of that is really visually inspired and I really loved it. Yeah. 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 Me too. So I think this is a strange film. Like I think that not every, it's not for everyone, but who it's for is really going to find a lot of good things to, to appreciate in this. Yeah, I agree. All right. I agree. Any other thoughts before we wrap up our review of The Velvet Vampire? Um, no. Okay. No, I think well, I'm good. All right. Well, then let's give our recommendations. Ariel, would you recommend people check out The Velvet Vampire? Yeah, I would. I definitely don't think everybody is going to maybe in- get as much out of it as I did or enjoy it as much. But I mm-hmm. think that if you listen to this podcast, like just watch the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's for smarties only. So if you're a smarty and you're listening to this show, give it a look. It is on TV. I also recommend. All right. Well, what do you guys think? Do you, uh, you guys are the smarties. You should have some thoughts. You can always share them with us at Rachel at zombiegirls.com or come chat with us over on the zombie girls, Facebook page, or, uh, you know, you can become a patron and chat with us on the discord. Cause that's where we're really at all the time. Uh, you can also slide into the DMS at ZG podcasts on Instagram, Twitter, and threads. And, uh, would love to hear from you. So definitely do that. If you are enjoying the show, and you want to be sweet and supportive like I know you are, you can always review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your pods. That really helps us out, makes us feel good, all that good stuff. If you're looking for something spooky to watch tonight because you've already watched The Velvet Vampire, then you can check out our video on demand and streaming calendar at zombiegirls.com. And like I said, if you want to support us, Patreon is a great way to do it. You get bonus episodes, extended episodes. I'm doing – you, Ariel, you should be so proud of me. Okay. I'm, I've been doing my resol- my my resolutions. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have something to tell you about this. I think you're going to love this. Okay. Okay. So I decided on January 1st that I had like five horror resolutions. And yeah. the number one one is to go back and watch a bunch of classic horror films that I have I'm not so seen. so happy. <laughs> I have already watched The Cabinet of Ca- Dr. Caligari. Yes. And I'm recording my review of it this weekend. Awesome. My ri- so I'm doing two from the 20s. I'm going to do that and Nosferatu. And then I'm going to mm-hmm. do in the 30s. The plan was to do... Catwoman. Okay. And Wait, cat, or cat people. Okay. Cat people. Sorry, cat, cat people. people. Yeah. 
and The Bride of Frankenstein. But then I was like, uh, we just reviewed it on More Deadly. That Or not More Deadly, sorry. Here's Johnny. That'd be weird. So instead, I'm taking inspiration from conversations that we had on that episode. Okay. I'm going to watch The Invisible Man. <gasps> yes. Oh, my God. I'm so excited yeah, and also I, really nervous. <laughs> I mean, I liked Bride of Frankenstein. You did. I was surprised. Honestly, I was afraid you wouldn't like it. I knew you were going to like the camp and the costumes, but I wasn't sure about any of the rest of it. Like, were you just going to like Dr. Pretorius? But um, I mean, he was my favorite. Him and the bride are my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> but, but no, I actually had a really good time with it. And like not to give away patron stuff, but like I have really good things to say about Dr. Cabinet of Caligari. So like maybe I'm going to learn to really like classic horror That would be so year. exciting. I would be I- thrilled if that was the outcome of this. If you guys haven't listened to the episode of Here's Johnny, we'll re-review The Bride of Frankenstein. You should go back to listen. We had a really good time doing that with them. Yeah. Uh, it was really was fun. Best. I was very bummed about the ultimate score. But yeah, their you gotta let that go. Is whack. <laughs> yeah, their scoring system is whack. You gotta just enjoy the conversation and yeah. the company and just like uh, listen. Yeah. They gave like an eighty to aliens. Yeah. you know, it's so bonkers. It's broken. The system it's, is broken. It's totally broken. But we had a great time. They were amazing, and uh, Rachel gave a great review of the Bride of Frankenstein and helped me out with raising the score in the scare department, even though yeah. I was like an asshole at the beginning and just like shat all over Stephen I King. I know, she you was were still so nice hating on me. And I was like, I still had your back. <laughs> I was just being crabby. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It's fine. It made for a funny show, so who cares? <laughs> but, and you, now you know I got you, boo. So yeah, uh, ch- Patreon, do that. You'll get to hear me talk about all of these classic films. I'm also reading... At least one horror novel every month. I've already got that review up. I just finished the second one. So that'll be going out too. Yes. And I'm going to be doing some horror games and a bunch of stuff. So definitely it's a great time to do Patreon. Ariel and Sarah might be cooking up something very Mm -hmm. soon that will be for patrons only. Matilda is working on some stuff that's going to be for patrons only. Like we're going to have a ton of bonus content this year. So you do not want to miss out on that. All right. So that is enough plug, 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 plugging. So that just leaves our plan for the next episode. So it's technically my pick. But Ariel, we actually Mm -hmm. have a guest joining us for the next episode. And we are letting him pick it potentially. So I don't know exactly what it's going to be yet. But we are going to be having our very good friend who we adore from Bloody Good Horror. Our buddy Casey will be joining us. So he is been tasked with picking something for us so we don't know exactly what it's going to be yet but if you follow us on social media we will let you know uh ariel will who has collectively far more brain cells at this point than i do (laughs) will be in charge of remembering that and we will post about it so that you guys can definitely play along but you can look forward me too uh, casey's so much fun he's such a sweetheart he i'm guessing we'll probably end up doing something from the 60s or 70s knowing him so it's gonna be back-to-back um retro woman directed horror probably (laughs) oh my gosh i love it that's gonna be a ton of fun so stay tuned for that well that's it for us today unless you're sticking around for the extended episode ariel will you do me a solid and uh take us out (laughs) sure All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of More Deadly. We hope you liked our review of The Velvet Vampire. We cannot wait to have Casey on for the next episode. You know, he owns a beagle that he named Agatha Christie, so I feel like in some ways we're soulmates. So I cannot wait. (laughs) (laughs) So be back here in a couple weeks for that one. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thanks to everyone for listening. And thanks to my co-host, Ariel, who is always willing to come on here and geek out about horror with me. And finally, thanks to the women who make the horror films we love so much. Production on this episode was done by yours truly. Editing was done by Ariel Messman Rucker. And our theme music is More Deadly by Elizabeth Kyle and Eric Newell. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the extended episode, aka More Deadly After Dark. Oh, yeah. Are you feeling it? <laughs> I mean, it is dark. It is dark. That is true. It's although it's always kind of I. So now it's not technically a basement, but it's like a half basement. Oh, uh huh. So there is a window that goes to the outside world, but I you have like dark. Yeah. Well, it it also goes directly into my neighbor's yard. Oh, so you close the curtains all the time? So uh, the curtains are always closed, which is kind gotcha. of a bummer because she has the cat, feral cat colony. And so I would be able to look at cats. But I also just, I don't know. I feel it. I understand that 
I didn't put the window in there and it doesn't make me a creep to have the window yeah. open. But I just, when she's out there and the window's open, I feel like a creep. So I keep it closed. <laughs> so this room is always so freaking dark. It's crazy. <laughs> this is totally my cave that I go into and talk about horror movies. That's funny. It's, it's just so cool looking though. Horror memorabilia and vintage hats. Like <laughs> I love it. I mean... Well, like this is going to be your room when you come visit and, and they're on opposite walls. So like, yeah, it's kind of weird, actually, now that you mention it. That's your Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes. Vintage hat collector, horror obsessive. Yes. Like at work, we're supposed to start doing like things more for the video team. And oh, they're like, okay, uh-huh. which is, yeah, I'm like, great, cool, cool. And they're like, no virtual backgrounds, though. And I was like, <gasps> now you got to really decide like, what side oh, do you want to show I- the world? I'm no. Oh. I, this uh, this is a, a very elaborate setup of lighting and microphones. Gotcha. And so this my background is my background. And if you've seen any of our videos, like if you're a pa- well, you're a patron, so you may have seen some of the videos. You know that yeah, I got nothing about horror memorabilia so behind me. <laughs> <laughs> I've got like I'm wondering, I'm waiting for someone to ask about the picture behind me because it's the one where you and I have like cloven hooves. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny because everybody that sees it always asks me like, Wait, what's really? going on? Yeah, Nobody people think asked. that we dressed up for that. So no, you're like no, we undressed for that. That's what we look like. <laughs> So yeah, behind me I have I have that picture up high and then down below I have the one where we're all like a coven of witches. Nobody ever asks about That's it. That's so funny. I want to do like a, a horror wall because I have – I want to put that. But I also have obviously like horror posters and stuff. And then uh-huh. I have like my haunted picture of some dead relative. Awesome. And then um, I want to get my parents to send me my skunk photo for this – like the skunk artwork that you got me. Yay! Um, yes! So I can put that up too. That's so funny. I just the other day finally hung up the because when I got your skunk thing, yeah. I got myself one. So I have me with pink, my pink, my pink yes. hair as a cat. Yes. I literally right. just hung that up. Oh it's God, been in a so tube cute. since I bought it. And I like when I moved into this house, I was like, you know what? I'm going to put this up. Hell yes. It's, so it's up. It's actually up in my bedroom um, because there's already so much like yeah. horror posters and shit down here and weird <laughs> art. And yeah. So but. Yes, you need to get that up because that is so cute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, because I had it in my – it was on my bedroom wall in California. But now, I don't know, my parents have moved. Everything's packed up. But I got to yeah. say, like, unearth it for me. <laughs> like, let's explain to the listeners what we're just descri- – Oh, tell right. them. Yeah, tell them. It's not – yeah, they don't They don't actually know what you're talking what about. So describe what it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so many years ago, I came over <laughs> to Rachel's house to record a podcast with her and Matilda. <laughs> And I had the night before been sprayed by a skunk. And so I was really worried that I smelled funny. Because <laughs> I had to bathe with spaghetti sauce. Anyway, oh this is a long story. Extra but, chunky ragu. Yes. But, <laughs> but after that, for Christmas, Rachel got me, uh, like an artist had done like a portrait of me, but where my hair is like a skunk, like nestled on top of my head. <laughs> Which is perfect because you have like dark hair, but with like a yeah. beautiful like gray streak in it. Like you were, it was meant to be. <laughs> it was meant to be. Yeah. It was meant to be. It's really cute. I got to get it so everybody can see it in the background. Yes. Oh my God. I would love it. It would make me so happy to see it. Mm-hmm. Already it makes me happy when I see like our little portrait together. Yeah, but me that too. Would make me, that would make me really happy. Uh, all right. All right. Mushy. That's too much mushy. Let's too this much. Is the, this is after dark. This yeah, is where we get we gotta spicy. talk about death. Yeah, and sexy ladies. Oh, and the thing we're going to be talking about today has those two things. Oh in yeah. Spades. 